Welcome to my secret obsession. I'm Cherish Lively, and I invite you to indulge your secret obsession by joining me as I read thriller and spicy romance that will get your heart pounding with chills and thrills. So relax, and let's take a journey together. 45. Ethereal Peter watched from the woods as the light slowly went off in Lexi's house. He knew Maggie had left. That was smart of Lexi to get her out of town. But Maggie wasn't his goal. Lexi's gift had set off a grenade in his killing spree. If she pointed the cops to the law firm, they could open an investigation that would destroy his plans. She had to be stopped. He'd spotted two shadows in the house. Was the detective with her? He couldn't help but smile. If the detective thought he could protect Lexi, he was wrong. After hours of watching her, the lights in the dining room and in her bedroom finally turned off. He walked back to his car and drove home. It was time. Peter lit the candles on the nightstands and the ones on the floor that circled his bed. Sandalwood incense filled the room, strengthening his ability to meditate. He put on his black latex suit and laid on the bed. Crossing his arms over his chest, he closed his eyes and whispered his spell. As he mumbled the words, his soul separated from his body. In this ethereal form, he could separate his will and mind from his physical body to do whatever he wanted. During World War II, the military had tried desperately to develop this skill within their gifted patriots. They failed. He'd worked on this for over a decade and was just now mastering the skill. As his physical body remained on the bed, the room vibrated, slowly disappearing until his soul was surrounded by a vast darkness. At first, voices and even the occasional blip of a person flipped past him. But as he grew accustomed to the sensations, the space around him was busy and loud. It was like watching a movie on Fast Forward but the speed the images flew past was nearly incomprehensible. The challenge was finding and stopping at Lexi's bedroom. He focused his thoughts on her as he sought her out. He grasped at her door jam as he flew by and entered the bedroom. A malicious joy filled his heart when he spotted Detective Steele on the mattress beside her. They were making this too easy for him. He could get rid of both of them tonight. Then he could return to terrorizing new saint. He would be unstoppable. He sat on the bed next to Lexi. Since he was ethereal, his weight didn't affect the mattress at all. Her soft breathing was steady and peaceful. She was a beautiful woman. It was too bad that she got caught up in all of this. If he hadn't visited Anna Shaw, their paths would never have crossed. There would be no threat at his doorstep. He would kill her, and then the detective. He brushed her hair away from her face. Then he slipped his fingers along her neck and squeezed. Her eyes bugged open, and a whimper escaped before he could close off her air supply. She instantly grasped at his hands, but it did her no good. Lexi's dream was cut short when hands slid around her neck and compressed her windpipe. She tried to take a breath in, but she couldn't. Hovering over her was the strangler. She'd seen him when she visited the crime scenes, but nothing could have prepared her for the reality of her own death. Fear, like nothing she'd ever felt before, seeped through her veins and chilled her body with terror. 
She thrashed on the bed and hit at him, but nothing seemed to hurt him. 46. Possession 3 a.m. Evan Evan was sprawled out on the mattress when the sound of gagging broke through the fog of dreams. He glanced in Lexi's direction and saw her thrashing about the bed. What the fuck? This was how she looked when she peeked into the past at the murder scenes. He sprang up and grabbed her by the shoulders and shook her. Wake up! Wake up! Her eyes held terror that chilled him. She was grasping at her neck, as if the strangler was choking her. For a brief second, she gasped out, Here! Here? Had he heard her correctly? He glanced at her body. Was the strangler on top of her? Was she saying that the man was here? Was he invisible? What the fuck? He had to at least try to help her. He grabbed the gun from under the pillow and yelled, Get off her! Lexi's fighting started to wane. Her face was turning blue. In desperation, he took a shot at where he figured the strangler would have to be if he was choking her. The bullet slammed into the wall. Fucking supernatural shit! Where the hell are you? He shot again, hoping that he'd hit the fucker. Nothing. Just another hole in the wall. In desperation, he set down the gun and grabbed the grimoire. He flipped open to the page on protection spells. He didn't have a clue how to do any of this, but he started reading a spell. 3.01 a.m. Peter Peter slowly craned his head to look at Evan as he began the spell. Evan's tone of voice betrayed his fear. There was a tremble in the edge of the words. He had to give Evan credit. He had Hutzpah to fuck around with magic and spells that were beyond his abilities. If Evan wanted to play with magic, he'd show the man something incredible. With a smirk, Peter upped the game. Taking a deep breath, he released his grasp on Lexi as he mumbled the possession spell, and when she gasped in air, she breathed in his essence. With her inferior powers, he was able to shove her aside. At first, her skin felt tight and constricting, but he adjusted to her body. His breathing regulated, his body acclimated, and he knew he was in charge. As Evan repeated the protection spell, Peter would scare the hell out of Evan. In one fluid movement, he had Lexi crouching on the mattress like a possessed animal. She let out a deep roar, as if she was a deadly feline ready to shred her prey. 3.02 a.m. Evan. Fuck! Evan cursed when Lexi crouched on the mattress, bared her teeth at him, and let out a menacing roar. With her back arched, she resembled a feral feline warning a rival not to mess with her. She looked truly wild, demon-possessed. Fucking possession! Are you serious? He grabbed the gun from the nightstand to keep it out of her hands and clutched the grimoire to his chest. No way in hell could he win this battle without the spells in the book. He wasn't thrilled with his chances of winning with the book. Lexi leapt from the bed with her hand stretched out and headed for his throat. As she reached for his neck, he used a Kramaga move to deflect her. She crashed onto the floor with a screech of anger. She squatted on all fours like a possessed monkey. Her eyes gleamed with anger, but then a smile slid onto her face. 
The smile made Evan's heart skip a beat. It was a mix between crazy and crafty, and it scared the hell out of him. As quickly as Chameleon snaps up a bug, she leapt at the bed and snatched the gun that he'd hidden under there earlier. Fuck! He forgot about that one. Evan clutched the grimoire against his chest and darted for the bathroom. A bullet flew by him and crashed into the wall. He slammed the bathroom door and locked it. His hand shook as he opened the grimoire to the page with protection spells. He started the chant, and everything went quiet. 47. Soul Crusher. Lexi. 3 a.m. When the hand cinched tightly around her neck, she knew the evil presence in her dream wasn't just a figment of her imagination. No, he was real. And he was with her. She gasped for air, but failed to breathe any in. The strangler sat upon her chest, crushing her ribs, with her neck held tight. She'd felt his hands around her neck before when she peeked into the past at the crime scenes, but this terror was a thousand times worse. She tried to shift and kick him off with her legs, but nothing worked. He was too strong and heavy. She reached over her head and hit the headboard with her fist while grunting and making as much noise as she could to wake up Evan. Relief filled her when she saw Evan approach. But when Evan grabbed her shoulders and started shaking her, she knew the situation was worse than she thought. She was awake. She gasped out, Here! in an attempt to help him understand that she didn't need to be brought back. Relief flooded her when he grabbed the gun and shot at the strangler. No! She screamed within the corner of her mind when the bullet went right through the strangler as if he wasn't sitting on her chest. The second shot confirmed her fears. The strangler wasn't invisible. He'd come to her psychically. 3.01 a.m. Lexi. When Evan began reading a spell, the hands around her neck loosened. For a brief second, she thought the spell was working. She took in a deep breath. That was when everything went to hell. As she breathed in, a darkness infiltrated her body and flooded her extremities. People talk about souls and essences, but those ideas have always been a metaphysical concept. But now she understood that her soul is also tangible. As the darkness filled her, a presence also filled her on a spiritual level. Not only was her soul being shrouded in darkness, but the darkness was plowing her spirit, much like a snowplow, to a finite cavern in her mind. Her soul, similar to a gas that fills a room, was now under pressure and scrunched into a nook. The pain was incredible, as if having him on her ribs and crushing her lungs wasn't bad enough. Now his soul crushed every part of her soul. She could barely move, but she could still see and feel what was happening. When Evan started reading one of the protection spells, she wanted to cry. This monster was going to use her to kill Evan. He would not live through this. She didn't think that she would either. 3.02 a.m. She could barely move, as she was wedged into the corner of her mind. She could still see and feel what was happening. In a fluid movement, she was on all fours like a wild animal. The roar that bellowed from her chest hurt her ears. Stop! she yelled. Stop! 
She tried to push the killer soul out of her, but it was useless. She commanded her body into submission, but it wouldn't submit to her will. The Strangler had claimed her body as his own. When the Strangler attacked Evan, he blocked her and she fell to the ground. The rage that the Strangler felt for Evan was laced with a palpable, searing hatred. She could taste death on her tongue. No! No! She screamed when he spotted the gun under the bed. Stop! She kept yelling. She had no idea how to get the monster out of her. When the Strangler had the gun in her hands and aimed at Evan, she panicked. She leveraged herself between the confines of her body and his soul. She used her body as if it was a wall and pushed off of it with her legs and rammed into his soul. The impact must have been jarring enough because the bullet sailed past Evan. She did it again and again, hoping to give Evan time to get away. When Evan slammed the bathroom door shut, she knew it wasn't over. The strangler wouldn't give up that easily. Another bullet flew through the door. She heard the protection spell fall from Evan's lips. She had hope. 48. Exorcism. 3.03 a.m. As Evan repeated the protection spell, she mumbled it along with him. Each reiteration boosted her courage and will to destroy this bastard. A red ball built between her hands. It radiated larger and larger each time she said the spell. Could she use this ball of energy to exercise the strangler? She held her hands out in front of her. She continued to repeat the spell as she confronted the darkness that had infiltrated her body. The spell and the ball of energy worked together. The killer's black presence that shrouded her was retreating. With each step, she was moving him further away, giving herself more room within her own body. She felt like a superhero as she used her hands to magically shove the strangler's soul from her body. A loud thud, like something metal had fallen, had Evan on his feet. Set the gun. His heart raced. He set the grimoire on the counter. Should he open the door? Another loud thud had him opening the door. Lexi lay on the floor. The gun was beside her. He grabbed it and set it in the bathroom where she couldn't easily get to it in case the strangler was still there. Then he rushed to her side and placed his hand on her cheek. Lexi. Lexi, are you okay? Can you open your eyes? Lexi felt weird. Like her soul wasn't properly positioned in her body. Her head was foggy. She moaned and brought her hand to her head. What the hell just happened? I swear to God, his soul was in my body. I think you were possessed. She let out a heavy sigh. Damn it. I didn't even know he could do that. How do I fight off a possession? I have no fucking clue, Evan said. Can you talk to Cleo? She's the one who gave you the grimoire, right? Lexi sat up and rested her elbow on her knee and supported her head with her hand. Yes, but her powers are generic. She can't do this stuff. I'm not sure she'll be much help. Do you have any better ideas? No, Lexi replied. I don't. I'll call her tomorrow. As she stood, the room spun. She grasped onto Evan's arm to catch herself. His hands went to her waist to support her. 
Are you okay? He was worried about her. What are the side effects of possession? He helped her make it to the bed. She sat on the edge, and he sat next to her. God, I feel weird. Yeah, I bet you do, he replied lightly. Do you want any water or anything? Water would be good. He went to the bathroom and grabbed a little paper cup that sat on the counter. He filled it and handed it to her. I'll get you more when you need it. Thanks. She finished it in one gulp. Fear laced its spiny fingers along her veins and chilled her. He's figured out how to do what the psychics in World War II were trying to do. He somehow transported his soul to this room and then shoved his way into my body. How are we going to fight that? We'll figure it out, he replied with feigned confidence. He was truly scared. This was like nothing he'd ever imagined. He set his hand on her back. How do you feel? She looked into his eyes. Grateful that I'm still alive? She paused and then continued. Want to know what scared me the most? What? he asked. That he'd kill you. She hadn't realized that slowly, as they'd worked together on this, he'd become her friend. He chuckled. Yeah, that thought had crossed my mind, too. But I was more afraid of what he was doing to you. I'm glad you're okay. I'm surprised I'm not hyped up on adrenaline. But I feel like I'm crashing now. Will you sleep in the bed with me? That way you'll know if he comes back again? Of course, he said. I got you. Now that you're caught up with the audiobook, I have some news to share. My secret obsession is shifting to an all-book podcast. I will read from various authors and give you longer audiobook segments. The occasional author interview will also give you a backstage view of the worlds and characters within these novels. So, coming up next is Lewis's and my final discussion on the true crime horrors of H.H. H. Holmes. Episode 5 is where I've noticed that the, the story gets a little thin at this point because mm-hmm. they're running out of ways to tie Holmes to, to the river yeah. at this point. They are. <laughs> yeah. Now it's focusing more just on what were the terrible things Holmes did. Because, yeah, they kind of have to leave the, the ripper idea to the side because they really don't have anything else to go with. I know we had mentioned it earlier in our talks, but um, thousands of trains, like over a thousand trains came in and out of Chicago on a daily Mm -hmm. basis. And um, there were a lot of women that were coming in on those trains and there were about 5,000 prostitutes estimated within Chicago at that time. And to put the World Fair in some kind of perspective, it covered 600 acres of land. And during a period of like just a few months, 27 million tickets were sold. Wow. I know that's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. We don't see anything like that now. No. I mean, with the exception possibly of a a movie. Right. But I mean, that's 27 million tickets sold and everybody's all over the world watching it. Not we're all converging on one place. Yeah. That's, That's unheard of. Well, and probably for the most part, 
Chicago wasn't ready for that many people in a sense of how long does it take to build up hotels and lodgings for that kind of number? Mm -hmm. So I would imagine if um, homes went down to the railroad station or, you know, targeted women who looked like they didn't know where they were going. And if he goes up to women and approaches them and says, hey, I've I've got a nice hotel you can stay at, they're probably going to jump at it. Right. Because they in the documentary, they make a point of saying that while there was a tremendous amount of opportunity, there wasn't as much opportunity as people thought. And yes. so these ladies were traveling to the city, probably thinking, we'll get to work the fair. We'll yeah. be like, you know, we'll, we'll like, pres- you know, be presenters or things like that. And mm-hmm. they get there and they realize, oh my gosh, there's not nearly as much work for all this as we thought. Right. And then they're winding up in desperate situation. Like you said, over 5,000 prostitutes. In, and, in like, and, and we're talking not a very large area. No. Where these prostitutes are supposed to have been. As a matter of fact, it's at this point that they coined the term, this was the American Whitechapel. Whitechapel was filled to the brim with prostitutes and yeah. other, you know, and other desperate people. Poverty. And mm-hmm. yeah, poverty just being crippling in that area. And it would have been in parts of Chicago as well, because they would have gotten there and realized one, not enough lodging, two, yeah. not enough jobs, mm-hmm. three, the fact that their gender is going to work against them yeah. in a situation like this. A man could have probably come to Chicago, and f- even if he couldn't get a job working at the World's Fair doing construction, he could have gotten a job somewhere else. It would have been easier for a man to find employment. Meanwhile, yeah. these women, and you know, they get there, realize they're in dire straits, and then they've got essentially X number of jobs that they can perform right. according to society. And most of them are going to wind up prostitutes because of it. Yeah. That's the very bottom of the of their kind of ladder. Very sad. Yeah. And Ray Johnson, he was a police detective. I think he's retired now. But he had said that during this time period, 800 young women missing a year. A year. Which, a year. 800 a year. You know, when you think about the, the number 5,000 for prostitutes, I'm thinking, okay, my kid's high school has like... 1500 or 2000 students, right? You know, when you start to try to think, okay, how big is that? I mean, there are towns that don't even have 5000 people. in I I came from a town with 5000 people in it. Imagine if we were all prostitutes, like an entire farming community in rural Texas is just 100% prostitutes. That's how you get how you get an idea. And we were spread out over a a very wide area. Yeah. By the way, the, the town I'm from is actually two small towns that are like butting up against each other. But these people were all like in almost like a, a mile or two, what they called the midway. That's incredible. I mean, they had to be almost on top of each other. Like they showed right. one map and it was like the whole street was just prostitutes. Yeah. All the red light district. So right. it's that's, that, yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. Add to that. 800 women are going missing. Well, not all of them are going to be prostitutes, but how many of them are? And for right. them to have maintained a population of about 5,000 means that they were having to replace about 1,000 of those prostitutes every year. Assuming it is 100% prostitutes that are going missing. Right. It's not, but you know, you get what I mean. It's They would have had to have a massive turnover and, and then still be able to replenish that, to maintain that, that level. Well, you know, with the trains that came in there, they were just dropping women off all the time, which is 
interesting to me. Maybe then it was legal or women were more allowed to go traipsing around the country by themselves. I don't think my parents, even when I was in my teens, you know, in 1990, in the 1980s and 1890s, I don't think they would have been okay with me saying, well, I'm going to go to New York City and see what happens. Right. You know, I mean, that just seems so dangerous. But I was um, I was a boy and it was the same situation. My parents wouldn't have let me travel to New York City by myself. <laughs> no. Yeah. I, I can I can only imagine the argument I would have had with my mother. Yeah. If, even, even at 18, if I'd yeah. said, Yeah, I'm gonna I'm going up to New York this weekend by myself, yeah. she would still be mad at me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> 30, 30 years later, she'd still be angry with me. And yeah. I remember that one time you went to New York. And said, <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So oh, it, it, it blows my mind that these women in it wasn't even the 1900s yet they went and even that they had the courage to do it in a sense. I would have been too afraid of like, well, what am I going to do? Where am I going to eat? Where am I going to sleep? Where am I, you know, all the all the things that you think about in your head, the concerns. You know, I don't know that they just didn't think about that, or they just thought it would all work out. I, I can I can I can talk from personal experience, and this again, this is me as a man. When we moved from Texas to Kansas, which is where we live now, I had to come up first with our son. And my wife mm-hmm. stayed behind uh, living in the, until her transfer her, from her job came through. Mm-hmm. And coming up here and basically starting the life is vaguely analogous to what they would have gone through. And mm-hmm. I was terrified. Yeah. And I am I am a middle-aged you know, educated, experienced man. Mm-hmm. And I'm still scared of, yeah. of like, of just, cause it's like, you're, you're like a trapeze artist working without a net at that. Point. Yeah. There's nobody. Cause you're there. There's no family. There's no support system. You're right. having to do it all on your own. Yeah. And these young ladies are probably coming from a world where they were coddled and protected mm-hmm. by, you know, they were, they were within, they were wrapped in the arms of family. Probably. Yeah, a lot of lot of cases. I can't imagine how terrifying that must. Be. Yeah, so I could see them jumping at an opportunity to stay at a nice hotel. Yeah, you know right. what they think is a nice hotel. And here's this nice guy offering them jobs. He was employing women, which right. it goes back to the pedophile who finds careers or jobs or activities where he can place himself around kids. Right. You know that's what he did. You know homes. Guidance counselor, youth pastor, that sort of thing, putting himself in in a position of authority where they will look to him for help and support and and all of that. Yeah, not not just putting himself in a job where he can be around them, but Mm -hmm. in a position of authority where they will they'll they'll be beholden to him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and so therefore more pliable. You know, if he makes a suggestion like, yeah, why don't you uh why don't you come over here and have dinner with me one night, Mm -hmm. you know. You know, yeah. you look like you need a good meal. Why don't you come on in and you know feed you and all that stuff and da 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 da. And the next thing you know, you're on a you're on a slab somewhere. Yeah, yeah it's tragic that happened so to so many people. Because even if even if he wasn't the one killing all those women, somebody somebody was. was yeah, somebody was disappearing those women. You know, yeah. It, because really again, we we go back to what we we talked about in the first episode, or rather, the first episode of this podcast which is a lot of those women were, were uh, ruled suicides. Right. Because they were being found killed very, in a very ripper-like fashion. Uh, at the very least, their throats being cut. Yeah. 
And these were being ruled suicides. Well, as I pointed out earlier, cutting one's throat was, was not an uncommon way to commit suicide prior to the 20th century. So the, I can understand that. But also, Holmes is using everything to his advantage again. Yeah. Because the World's Fair is, Chicago at this point is a bunch of uh, warehouses and slaughterhouses and things like that. It is the gateway to the West, but it is also a city that is looking to try and enter the world stage the way London and New York and Paris is. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they realize that the World's Fair is the way to do it. And nothing can get in the way of people coming to the fair. That's right. And it is their ticket to being a, considered a serious destination for people. And, and and by people, what I really mean is civilization, culture, cultivating a, a refined city as opposed to just being a pile of slaughterhouses, which is mm-hmm. kind of how they were perceived at that point. They wanted that glistening kind of reputation, you know, right? Mm-hmm. something like that being called the white city, you know, white representative of clean and pure and, pure. you know, beauty and possibility and all of that, right? Mm-hmm. They're willing to sweep th- some of these murders under the rug. And so Holmes, without us knowing that he did for sure, you and I both have pretty much come to the same conclusion, which is this was a feast for yeah. this man, an absolute yeah. feast. Because again, no national identification system. Mm-hmm. So no one's walking around carrying identities. Some right. of these people showing up in town, maybe not necessarily giving their names, their proper yeah. names. Some of these ladies may not have told their families where they were going. Some of the people, and not, not even just single women travelers, but anybody showing up in the city may or may not have contacted people and let them know they, where they were headed. Yeah. And because nobody has any identification, because we don't have things like fingerprinting well it's being used but it's being used like in france at the moment it's not really widespread yet so there's a lot of other things uh, that just it's a perfect hunting ground yeah it for is homes just absolutely the like it, it must it must have seemed like an all-you-can-eat buffet yeah you know mm-hmm. just as far as the eye can see just potential victims which he also just sees as money Right. You know, uh, he can make money hand over fist with these women. And, you know, I think he was getting some sort of weird uh, enjoyment out of it. So I think even though a lot of his motivation could be money, I think there was also an emotional enjoyment that he got from doing all of this stuff to these women and with these women. You know, they also were talking about there were two women murdered in the same day with their throats cut, which is similar to the uh, Stride and Eddowes yes. scenario. And and there's a spike in Ripper murders after 91. Yes. By the way, they, they, they look up murder rates and they make a, remember they make a bar graph. Yes. And there mm-hmm. is a, there is a sharp spike in murders, the reported murders mm-hmm. after 91, which is after he, re- he acquired his warehouse and all kinds of other stuff. Yeah. They're spike in Ripper style murders. I yes. should mention that. And so, yeah, there's there's a one woman uh, disemboweled. There's another one uh, cut up. Some are buried. Some are burned. Some are traditionally murdered, as I put that mm-hmm. in quotes. Uh, and of course, you know, there's the theory of the concrete. So, in other words, they're suggesting that Holmes is, in order to evade being labeled like Jack the Ripper, calling mm-hmm. attention to himself, he starts to ver- various murders. 
Mm-hmm. Now, of course, again, you know, we can't point this out often enough. This is conjecture. Right. We have mm-hmm. no idea that he's if he's killing anybody. We're only saying here that the the opportunity was ripe. Right. During this period, it couldn't have gotten any better for a guy that wanted to kill. If he wanted to do this stuff, he, yeah, a limitless supply. Definitely. Um, but we don't know for sure. No so um, we end up leaving that episode and we start with episode six, Blood and mm-hmm. Bone. And in there, we learn that he is actually deciding to build another castle. And this castle is in Texas. So yes. he ends up marrying Georgiana Yoke. She's his third wife. Again, he's, I don't think he's divorced the other two. They're still wives. He too. has not. Yeah. So he is on his third wife now. She is from Texas and Peitzel goes with him. And I think this is when they start thinking about building the second castle and starting to do maybe some ideas with uh, Peitzel on doing more insurance scams. So he is traveling with Peitzel. They're pulling off all these scams, you know, in Pennsylvania, Texas. I mean, they're they're going all over the place with these um, scams that he's running. And I don't know if there were a lot of deaths, like if he murdered in all of these different cities when they had overlaps, that would be kind of interesting to know is if, if he could control it or if it was something that he still had to do. Steve Barnett is an Indiana historian, and he showed Jeff and Amaryllis a house that uh, Holmes had rented. And in that place is where he ends up killing the little boy, the Peitzel boy. Yeah. So we go back to Texas. He, he ends up convincing Peitzel that he wants to do an insurance scam on him. Peitzel agrees, and they end up getting Peitzel's wife to agree also. She was against it at first, but they convince her that it's okay. So he ends up killing Peitzel instead of doing the con. And then he convinces Carrie Peitzel that Peitzel is okay. He's just at a different location and that she needs to sign something over to him. So she does that. And he tells her, for the protection of the kids, send three of the kids to me. I'll keep them safe. And that way, when you travel, people are looking for a woman with five kids, and you'll just have two. So she sends him the three kids, and he ends up killing all three of these children. He kills one of them in Indiana, the little boy, and they end up putting him in a wood stove. And they did find the boy's organs a year later. The the stomach, liver, and spleen were found. And one thing I thought was just horrific, they talked about on the day when he kills the little boy, he actually took the little boy to a smith or something, but he had the, the knives were sharpened. Oh he my gosh. I know. Can you, but he t- takes the boy with him and he gets these knives sharpened, all of them. And in the video, you know, which is just video, they show the little boy looking up at him and they're both smiling like, wow, isn't this neat how they sharpen knives? But, you know, what kind of monster takes a kid to have the knives sharpened when you know you're going to be killing him soon? I mean, that to me was just like, wow, that just shows how heartless he is. And I also think there must be a certain amount of enjoyment that he got from that. Oh, yeah. You know, from looking at the little kid and thinking, oh, I'm going to kill this kid. So that was terrible. He did kill the little boy, Howard, and burned him and then put parts of him up into the stovepipe, which the Pinkerton later found. If, um, if we're going with the nine kill theory. I don't see 
a sadistic element. He may have, you know, this may have been just a necessary thing that he took him with him to get the knife sharpened. I don't know. But if we go with the the 20 or the 200 theory, I really believe there's a sadistic element mm-hmm. to the murders, I suppose. Right. The strangling, yeah, you'd be you'd be afraid, you couldn't breathe. That, that's pretty bad. But not taking somebody and showing them the knives that you're going to be chopped up with. Right. You know, mm-hmm. there there is a there, there's a certain sadism there that you, you know you don't get with some of the other theories. Man, I can't even imagine. I'm I'm sitting here just kind of a little queasy. I know. Just it's thinking really about bad. that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's impossible to be a parent and not at, even just like for a split second not put your own child's face. Right. On that little boy. Yeah. You know, and imagine if that were your child doing it. Oh, yeah. He kills the little boy and then he ends up going to Toronto and he mm-hmm. kills the two girls. Yes. They're put in a truck in like a steamer trunk and he gasses them. Now, I think we had mentioned earlier that they were found naked. There's a question that perhaps they were sexually assaulted before he killed them. And again, this is one of his kind of like gadget things. This uh, this particular steamer trunk he has them get into is fitted with an apparatus that he can pump uh, gas into. It, it's essentially his own little miniature Auschwitz. Yeah. You know, he puts them in there, gasses them to death, and then I believe he disconnects it and then buries the whole trunk. If I'm not, am I correct on that? Or does he just Gosh. leave that somewhere? I'm not sure that he buried the trunk. I know he buried them. I'm pretty sure he buried them. I, but I, I thought he, I thought he left them in the trunk and just kept everything together. Am I? I guess I could be wrong. You know, you could again, be right. Again, there's so many different versions of what happens. Yes, it's hard to keep it all. One source will say one thing, and another source will say another. So right. that really makes this a challenge to know what, if anything, is real. You know, what's real and what isn't. What's the lore? And now we're going to episode seven: No Rest for the Wicked. He ends up getting arrested, finally, and it's because of Marion Hedgepeth. At one point, Holmes was arrested in Texas, and while he was in Texas, he was discussing something with his cellmate, and he tells him about how he does this scam with the insurance companies, and that man is Marion Hedgepeth, and he convinces Hedgepeth that, hey, I'll give you $500 if you set me up with a good lawyer. So Hedgepeth, I guess because he was from the area, knew a good lawyer, and Holmes was able to get out. So after that, that was then when Holmes did the killing of Peitzel and all of that, and Hedgepeth heard about the fact that Peitzel was dead, and Holmes had not given Hedgepeth the $500 that he swore that he would. Hedgepeth gets back at Holmes, and he informs the to the insurance companies that Holmes is running these insurance scams. So then the insurance company decides to hire the Pinkertons to locate Holmes, and they actually do end up finding him in Boston, and that is where he gets arrested. Yeah. Okay, so I I looked it up real quick. Holmes did bury the bodies separate from the trunk. Okay. It was was in the cellar. This is the cellar. um, He had a rental house in Toronto at 16 St. Vincent Street. Okay. So they were buried. Just, yeah, I just wanted to wanted to clarify that one. Yeah. So if he buried them in the trunk, that's similar to the whole concrete thing. Right. right. So I was trying mm-hmm. to maybe see if that could tie back somehow. Anyway, yeah. go ahead. They do arrest him. And while he's in prison, 
he is approached by William Randolph Hearst, who is a newspaper owner, and he pays him $7,500 for his confessions. He confesses to some murders that we find out later he hadn't done because the people were still alive. His first murder was of his Robert Leacock, who was his partner in med school. And then later, Robert Leacock is actually found to be alive after Mm -hmm. he supposedly had killed him. So, you know, we we even have to look at this confessions from him as if we don't know what part's true and what part isn't. I guess that's my big takeaway with H.H. Holmes is that there are lots of theories, lots of lore. Certain things make sense. Certain things make mm, feel like a stretch. But you just don't know for sure because you can't trust the source at all. And he was so good at getting rid of bodies that there's no way to even have a guess as to how many, you know, how many people he murdered. Who knows? That number is as high as 200, and another guy says it's nine. And I should mention that, you know, he's the one that says that Laycock was his first kill. Mm -hmm. However, you know, if we if we go back to episode one of the documentary, they're talking about his cousin dying mysteriously. Because in his memoirs, it's important to mention Holmes makes himself out to be a kind of victim himself. Thing where he was forced to do these things. He had to do this. He had to mm-hmm. do that. And, you know, all this other stuff. Right. And so if he had murdered a child or a woman or whatever, you know, he probably wouldn't have brought that up as his first kill. Right. And maybe that's why he substitutes Laycock and who was verifiably still alive up until I believe 1889. I think that's when he passes away in Ontario. So he doesn't survive too many more years than uh, than what Holmes attributed to him, but there's no evidence that Holmes killed people. Dr. Russell was Mm -hmm. his second kill. Mm -hmm. The one that he bashes with the chair. Because he may, he may have killed somebody beforehand, but it might've been uh, somebody else other than his Mm -hmm. old partner. I wanted to try to bring that back in, try to tie everything together. And it's, it's also good to remember that he might not want to admit that kids were his first kill because that would not get him sympathy. Exactly. That's exactly why I'm bringing it up. It's not only would it not, we cast him as unsympathetic. Remember that he's very arrogant. Yes. And to suggest that he was killing kids because that was the only thing he could manage, you know, maybe because they were not strong enough to fight back. That would have been a blow to his ego too. That's true. There's actually one thing that I had not heard about. There's something called the Holmes curse. After he was tried and hung mm-hmm. uh, in the following months, and I think he maybe even the not too distant years from when this had happened, people that were associated with the trial started dying. Some of them were dying under suspicious circumstances. Really? So there, yes. So like maybe five or six people. And the Holmes curse uh, sends out this idea that perhaps. Holmes was able to convince people to help him swap out bodies so that he was not hung and they would and hang. Then he, and then he exacts revenge on the people. Yes. Yes. So they were curious about, okay, what is their Holmes curse? Did he go around trying to kill people who tried to do him wrong in his mind? And the, the last episode of the show, they end up having to dig up his grave because they want to know if 
his body is even in the grave. Because if the Holmes curse is true, then somebody other than Holmes was buried in that grave on that day. So they start to dig and they get to down to about eight feet and they finally hit wood. And when they hit that wood, I think inside the first box is a bunch of concrete. Holmes isn't in there. They, they checked that first casket and then they kept going because they didn't find bones. And then there was a bunch of concrete mm-hmm. and they decided to go again further and they found a second casket. And in that casket, it was a bunch of concrete because he had been encased in concrete. So See, they ended that's up trying- weird because that is like a little bit too far. If you're just seeing to somebody's wishes. I mean, that's not just, okay, we'll, we'll put some concrete on you. Right. I mean, this, this was like a double fake. And on, on top of that, if I recall, it was a very big area that was encased in concrete. Like it was yes. much larger than what was, what was necessary to get a coffin inside of it. Yes, because he bought two plots together and he wanted to be buried in the middle of the two plots. So... Uh. He had twice the size of most areas. So he and he wanted to be buried in the middle. So they buried him in the middle. And they finally got down to when they got to the second casket, they were able to get rid of enough of the concrete and they ended up finding his skull in there. And they were able to take some DNA. It was H.H. Holmes. So H.H. Holmes is buried in that bottom of that casket. And that kind of disappointed some people in the show because they, I think they kind of wanted there's that sick desire or need to think that, Oh, he got away with it. This is the perfect con, you know, like he pulled off the the best con ever, but he didn't. That was him that was buried in the, in the concrete down at the bottom, but it just goes to show his genius and his manipulation because that burying him like that was a lot of effort right? and a lot more effort than he deserved to follow his wishes to that level. People must have been impressed with him to a certain degree. Right. I mean, I, I just don't understand it. If it was, you it was a sensation whenever he was alive. Yeah. You know, remember, remember that he did not just write the memoir that it was a bestseller. I mean, people wanted to read about this guy. They didn't, he didn't talk about the murders and whatnot, if I recall. He just talked Mm -hmm. about like his cons. He had kind of a, almost like a Bonnie and Clyde kind of status. Yeah. People Mm -hmm. romanticized the idea of this guy getting things over on rich people and, and, you know, pulling all these cons and just being just a rogue. America's always kind of had this thing where they there where we seem to really identify with the guy that's bucking the system mm-hmm. we're not you know we're not big on following people that are working within the rules to make something happen we like the guys that break the rules break the laws for, for whatever reason and and holmes was just like the the again the quintessential criminal the king of the king of the criminals right so, yeah king of the criminals I yeah. wonder if part of that is if they look at Holmes and they they don't acknowledge or don't think about the murders and they just look at all the cons, I wonder if there isn't uh, some sort of Robin Hood feeling about that, that he is doing stuff he shouldn't do, but he's doing it for maybe a good reason or he's trying to to help medical schools or he's he's getting money so he can go to med school. What is that appeal? Because I don't think that I would be that impressed by somebody who goes around 
in my mind, just stealing from other people when you're running cons like that. I mean, I can see where they'd be like, wow, that was pretty clever. I mean, I, yeah, I like the idea of Robin Hood as much as the next guy, but you know, what was, what's the thing we always said about Robin Hood stole from the rich to give to the poor. H.H. H. Holmes was steal from the rich to be rich. <laughs> to making himself richer. Yeah, yeah that's that, for sure. He wasn't doing anything for anybody. Yeah. No, he really he was, wasn't. He was, he, and, and he wasn't just getting, he wasn't just shafting rich people. These were, these were business owners he was getting. These yeah. were guys who were trying to make a living for their family. Bricklayers and mm-hmm. Finnish uh, carpenters and guys that were not rolling in cash. Right. He was mm-hmm. screwing these people over. Yeah. You know, a man that owns a furniture business isn't necessarily wealthy. And when mm-hmm. you, when you, when you get a bunch of, furniture from him on credit, then, you know, you're all but ensuring that his company is going to almost crumble. If yeah. You don't, yeah. If you, you know, if you don't pay for everything that you, that you've gotten from him. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, he's a, yeah, he's a jerk. Yeah, he is even, for even sure. If, even if he wasn't a killer, he'd still be a monster. Yeah. Just for how many people he screwed out of his money. Mm-hmm. I have a, I have a, uh, some family lore. I have a cousin who was a con artist. So I have an emotional mm-hmm. thing in all of this. Then this guy, this guy went around bilking little old ladies out of their retirement. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's no good. He was bad enough that um, he wasn't allowed to go to Dallas, Texas because local organized crime had a, he was, you know, if he sets foot in this city, he's dead. Wow. Kind of thing. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the, that's the quality of this guy. <laughs> right was was you know that like the mobsters were were thought he mm-hmm. was scum. So when I I'm looking at all these things that Holmes did, it just it maybe yeah. a greater sense of revulsion than necessary. Just because I know I've seen what it it does. I was there many times when my father would get an, uh, a phone call from a little old lady Aww. who had mm-hmm. been who had been bilked out of her money, and she's crying on the phone, and my dad's trying to comfort her. And she called him thinking he was the cousin because the cousin would mm-hmm. often use my dad's name. Oh. And I mean, and, and you'd watch these people with like, they just, they had nothing. Yeah. In one of the more vulnerable times in your life, at the end of your life, whenever you need every penny to get by, mm-hmm. yeah. these, these people were just, you know, they were destitute. And so, I mean, I, I can see Holmes doing that kind of thing on a certain level. And it's just, it, to me, it's disgusting. It's, yeah. Yeah, there's nothing redeeming about this man. No, there is nothing redeeming. But they did say it was kind of like the O.J. Simpson case of of their time period. Oh, Everybody really, was there. Everybody wanted to know what was going on. And people um, had opinions like, "Oh, you know, he doesn't deserve whatever." It's important to note that he was ever only convicted of one murder, and that was Benjamin Peitzel. Mm-hmm. He was never convicted for uh, Peitzel's children, the Connors, or. Any of the other people that pretty much know he killed. Right. We, could, we know he killed now. He was not yeah. convicted of any of those. Only Benjamin mm-hmm. Fights. Which is incredible, isn't it? Yeah. I think he did a huge number of kills, but you know, only the one is what he went down for. That is right. incredible. And the one was his partner, too. It's like, wow, he, re- he screwed over his partner, which, you know, partner in crime. But, you know, he really had no loyalty or he thought truly just of himself and what would benefit him through and Pi- every Pizel was with him a lot. 
Yeah, Pikesel was with him for quite a while. Yeah. They were together for I think several years. And they ran yeah. several several scams together. Yeah, they did. Wow. Yeah, I guess Pikesel never saw it coming. Man, you to, think to, he would have, right? You would think this guy would be like. But I guess if he was, you know, immoral as well, maybe yeah. he was like, oh yeah, it's part of the game. And and who knows? Maybe Peitzel had an idea of how he was going to screw over Holmes at one point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you don't know because we, you know, we can't interview him. Like he probably didn't keep a journal or mm-hmm. anything like that. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and apparently his wife was oblivious as yeah. to the, the, the circumstances of what he did. You know, yeah. she might've known possibly that he was a, cause they, obviously she had to know he was a con artist mm-hmm. because of that. She was in on the uh, insurance scam that got, right. yeah, mm-hmm. that got picked up. I guess the Holmes curse is just all, all theory. I'm looking at some, I'm looking at the, the Holmes curse right now, as a matter uh-huh. of fact. Yeah. The glory of the internet. I can look yeah. these things up in real time for us. I know. So apparently the superintendent of the Indianapolis police force got, he got thrown from his horse during a parade. Okay. He, he survived, uh, but he had the injuries for the rest of his life. Uh, the coroner, one of the coroners who uh, testified against Holmes uh, dropped dead from blood poisoning. Mm-hmm. The trial judge and lead coroner both died suddenly from previously undiagnosed illnesses. The superintendent of the prison where Holmes was uh, held and executed, he commits suicide. The father of one of Holmes's victims was horrifically burned in a gas explosion. Frank Geyer, the detective who had finally tracked down Alice, Nellie, and Howard Peitzel, was struck with a sudden illness. He mm-hmm. did recover. Okay. But yeah, he got he got hit with something. Um, there was the office of the claims manager and the insurance company. Holmes had cheated, uh, caught fire, and burned. Uh, apparently, the only untouched items were a framed copy of Holmes's arrest warrant and two portraits of Holmes. Huh? Man, now that's the one right there where it's like, yeah, yeah that is like, a little. Uh, let's see. The fiance of one of Holmes's defense lawyers died suddenly. Uh-huh. An occupant of Holmes's murder castle committed suicide. The jury foreman was electrocuted. Marion Hedgepeth, who uh, was killed during a holdup. I remember that one. Uh, the murder castle, of course, itself uh, burned. Mm-hmm. So we, we actually don't have evidence of a lot of the, the things that are supposed to have been in there. So, you know, we've never actually... We don't have photographic evidence of the murder castle itself. We only have the blueprints mm-hmm. and and his plans for it. And that could have easily, you know, the whole the murder the murder castle itself could be a hoax that that he perpetuated with his own thing. However, I really find that highly unlikely. Yeah, I don't I don't believe that either. Well, and I think you I think you're right. They did burn the the. Uh, murder castle was burnt down but i do think there are police officer reports of things that they found okay is there because i've never seen anything any kind of evidence of that in anything i've seen or read that they've ever alluded i thought they alluded to that in the show because they said how you know they they found like a dissection table that was soaked in blood they found certain things supposedly uh, one of the things was a rack, maybe, but you know, I Let's, don't know. I mean, here's the thing: Seltzer, 
says all of that is a fabrication done in the 20th century by writers like Robert Block, who wrote a book about a horror novel about H.H. Holmes. Huh. So, yeah, I know, right? I mean, again, it's just, this story is like we're trapped in, in Holmes's murder castle. Everywhere is a false wall or yeah. a dead end or a room with five doors or whatever. There's there's no way to orient yourself and get to the real truth of this. That is a great analogy because you're absolutely right. It's true. You know, we don't know what's real and what isn't. And there really isn't any proof of much of anything. No. And and what, what people do think is truth is either lore or contradicts right. another person's truth. <laughs> Now, I see, here's the deal. I, even though I'm trying to remain objective in all of this, I believe in the murder castle. You know, and it's not it's not because I again, it's not because I want the numbers to be big, although, you know, on on a, on a creative level. Yes, I want him to be the 200 plus guy, but it seems I don't I can't I can't explain it. It's just like it's like a gut feeling. It's like, man, that makes sense. Because yeah. how else does he how else does he pull off the nine kills? Forget yeah. the 20, forget the 200. How does he pull off the X number of kills before he starts wiping out the Pitzels, which is like what five people, I guess, right? Because mm -hmm. it's, it's what four four of the Pitzels, and then I think yeah, the Mr. Pitzel and then the three children. And then yeah. there's the wife and two other children still alive. Right. So then the other ones are what the Connors and, mm -hmm. and, and then the two sisters in Texas, right? Those yeah. are the ones mm -hmm. he admitted to, I believe. Yes, I think so. So that, that doesn't even take into account like Dr. Russell or any, or the, or Warner, uh, Wade Warner or any of the other guys that mm -hmm. he's supposed to have murdered during the business murder section. So let's just say the, those five. And then, well, I guess we got to throw in Emmeline. What's her name too? Yeah. Sagrand. Yeah. I'm never going to be able to do that. Sagrand. Okay. <laughs> CI and then grand. Yeah, but I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> I might not be saying it correctly. You probably no, you probably are. It's probably just my kryptonite. I don't know. All I know is this woman's name is like it's just beyond me. But okay, so you know how does he how does he make all of them disappear? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, there's just there's it's a busy street. If he's got to have people helping him get bodies out, how is he doing it? Well, he's selling the skeletons. Yeah, and and the, again, how is he selling all these body parts? How is he selling? How, where is he getting all of it if he's not murdering right. people? Yeah, right and left. I know. I know the theory. I know Seltzer's theory is that he was working with a number of people who were procuring bodies for him, mm -hmm. and that's fine. But uh, this is a guy that has no compunction toward yeah. killing none, and mm -hmm. he's got and he has like a smorgasbord laid out for him. You're telling yeah. me that this guy isn't going to take advantage of that. A guy who uh, you have said yourself used everything, cut up the yeah. bodies and resold the coffins. I mean, this guy, yeah, he left nothing unused. You're yeah. telling me this guy is not going to see an opportunity in murdering people in this hotel. People yeah. who can't be traced by yeah. any means. No grief. Yeah, I, I I believe in the I believe in the big number, and I believe in the murder hotel. Yeah, um, I do too. Yeah, I think some of the individual facts on people or situations might not be right, 
But I definitely yeah. think that he was a cold-blooded mur- murderer and uh, evil. I will go back to my evil word. He was evil. You know what? Just for the sake of, of a good ending, I'll agree with you on that. He uh, was evil. Yeah. He was evil, yes. We, we come together at the end. Yes, that's <laughs> funny. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's no other word. There's no other good word for it. No. I, I have no word to, to describe <laughs> this man. I have no. no way of summing this guy up. Evil is the only word one can employ yeah. in a case like this. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Even even if I'm not necessarily on board with the the you know the definition and all of that and right. everything, this that's the only way you can describe this man. Yeah. Words are defined differently to everybody anyway. He, I think, is a great example of someone who meets the definition of evil almost in any person's definition of evil you know what if if i'm gonna if i'm going to agree to evil he's my yeah yeah he's my picture in the dictionary next to the word evil it shouldn't be his face right yeah for sure well thank you so much for talking with us oh yeah about this this is great (laughs) for hours and hours and hours (laughs) i know five hours oh my gosh five hours later holy cow gosh i know and i was thinking i told my husband oh it'll only be like two hours today well, Maybe. I yeah. really thought it was going to be short because, again, we have so little factual evidence. But the more I, the more I was watching that documentary, I'm like, we're we're going to have to go into the lore. Yeah, there's no way we can get around. We can't tell the H. H. Holmes story without fault without diving into the mythology. Right? No, so, you have to. You have yeah. to. So thank you so much. And yeah, um, sure. do you want to be a part of my secret obsession? I'm looking for secrets and tattletales to read aloud on the podcast. Do you know any small town secrets? Have you had a brush with danger that rocked your world? Are supernatural activities or hauntings keeping you up at night? Write your story and send it to my secret obsession podcast at gmail.com. You can also follow my secret obsession on Instagram and Twitter at Cherish Lively. Thank you for joining me for this episode of My Secret Obsession. New episodes drop on Tuesdays and Fridays.